The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Blair. And, and I want to thank you guys for an opportunity to come and, and to stand in the pulpit in front of you. It is something that I do not take lightly. And so I'm very thankful for this opportunity and, uh, and pray that... Uh, that anything that I would have to say today would be directly from the Bible and uh, nothing more, nothing less. And so I think we'll start with, um, it's kind of, you know, most preachers want to start with a joke. And this is kind of a joke, but uh, it's one, you know, one that, one that we have in my small group a little bit. And I've heard it in like Sunday school settings and stuff like that. And it, it goes something like this. Jesus is the answer. Now, what was the question? Have you heard that before? And we usually apply it in situations like when we get pretty deep in teaching, you know, and we're getting to have some confusion and we're trying to iron that out and, and somebody will finally just go, I don't know, Jesus, it's Jesus, that's the answer. <laughs> and they're right, it is the answer. But that's what we're going to look at today is, is that Jesus is the answer. That's what the, the text brings. In fact, there's, there's this old uh, Swiss-German theologian that there's a really great picture of him, it's a meme that's floating around on the internet and like he's in, he's in his old gray flannel suit and he's got a big fat pipe and big glasses and you know he's kind of leaning over and he's the one that gets credit for this and underneath it it says Jesus is the answer now what was the question he's got this one eyebrow that's cocked way up high it looks like a squirrel's nested on top of his glasses and, and it's, it's I should have made a slide it's a great picture but anyway uh, he, he has been credited with with coming up with this Jesus is the answer now what's the question and the reason that it's not a joke is because when when he was around, and we're talking about like World War II, pre-World War II times when Nazis were coming to power, and uh, the church was just a mess. It, it had gone off the rails uh, with the, the place of the Bible in the church and the place of Christ in the church. And so his whole ministry revolved around the centrality of Christ, getting back to Christ. And God used him in a mighty way to, uh, to really take... Uh, Christians and, and, and turn that around and combat where things were going. And, and so I don't know, you know, whether that truly gets attributed to him or not, but it, it's applicable to us. And so we're going to see from the text today um, what these questions that Jesus is the answer to. So turn with me, if you will. Let's go to Colossians. I'm going to put the B in Bible church today. Get your Bibles out. We'll go to Colossians chapter 1. We're in verse 15 through 20, and I'll read it for us here. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All right, that's a lot. There's a lot in there. And I don't want you to... To be intimidated by that, I mean, it's, it's, 
it seems difficult what Paul's written here, but, but we'll lay out some context that'll begin to help us work our way through this. So Paul's writing to a church at Colossae and, and also to their neighboring church, Laodicea. So if you think about where Turkey is today, modern Turkey, that's the region. In this region, there, there was a new heresy that was forming. It's called Gnosticism. Have you ever heard of that? Gnosticism? It's still around today. Um, it's a false gospel. It masquerades as an ancient form of Christianity. And it's very bad. Stay away from it. You can usually identify it quickly because adherents talk about this secret or hidden version of Christianity. And they tout books like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Mary and, and I suppose the uh, Gospel of just about anybody else except the men who actually wrote the Gospels. And they weave these stories of hidden agendas and church conspiracy theories that sound a lot like the Da Vinci Code and nothing like seeking the Lord. And it's around today, and they had it back then. And what it was doing was teaching essentially that although God is good, that his creation is bad. And since Jesus is a man, there's no way that he can be deity. In other words, it taught that Jesus is not God. And on top of that, it was teaching that angels should be worshipped. Well, Paul's got something to say about that. So he writes this letter to the churches in that region to crush this Gnostic nonsense that was bubbling under the surface. And in doing this, he lays out in my opinion, the most concise, theologically dense, powerful description in all the Bible of who Jesus is. And so, understand that the passage seems a little bit intimidating, but, but bear with me and let's work our way through it. Because I think what we're going to find in, in this, this passage is called famously the preeminence of Christ. Is, is what these verses are always referred to. And I think what we're going to find in this is, is that he is preeminent. He's first. He's the most important. That's what this word means, preeminent, that he's the highest. And then we'll see that he is the answer. So what was the question? I'm so glad that you asked. Let's think about some of life's big questions that are addressed directly in this passage. What is God like? It's a good question, right? Everybody asks this question. Atheists, agnostics, Christians, Muslims, Jews, everyone at some point asks the question what God is like. And the world's full of opinion. The pagan roots of Western civilization have, have taught us that, the, that God is like us, and if we just sit and think and reason about it long enough, then we can find an understanding of what God is like. And if we don't care for that God, we can simply replace him with one that satisfies our taste. Eastern philosophy has taught us that, taught the world that God is in us, and if we clear our minds and look deep within ourselves, we can understand what God is like. Both of these draw their essence from the fall. In Genesis 3, the serpent told Eve that when you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. But we know what happened. Sin entered the world. And so this fallen world looks to itself, looks to humankind to understand what God is like. And the world's image of God is subjective, it's perverted, but God has been kind to us. 
God has given us an answer that is objective and pure. We have Jesus. Read verse 15. Let's look at it. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. Stop right there. That's far enough. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God loves? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God forgives? Look at Jesus. He's the answer to what God is like because the, he's the image of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, there's a lot to be learned about God from all over the Bible. The Old Testament is a treasure trove of revelation about God's nature and his character, and, and we can pour over all 66 books of the Bible, systematically gathering all the bits and pieces of information about God and analyzing them to see what we can learn. And hopefully there's time for that. But that's not where we start. If you're looking for a place to start today, if you want to see what God is like and you want to begin, look at Jesus. You know, we've got time between now and Thanksgiving to read one of the Gospels. Read Mark. It's the shortest of the four. It's fast. And you have time between now and then. Tomorrow's a new day. You have an opportunity to look at Jesus. I would encourage you to read Mark 9. Look at Jesus because he's the firstborn of all creation. Look back at verse 15. You can see that in there. But let's read again. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There's a little problem here. Some controversy comes up from this passage a lot. You see, this verse is, is misused by those Gnostics that we talked about, by Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, and other fake Christian groups that claim, see, see, Jesus was created, firstborn of all creation. It means he was created. This, brothers and sisters, is a misunderstanding which the enemy has used for centuries to mislead people. The passage is not saying that Jesus was created, but rather, Jesus has positional authority over all that was created, meaning that he holds all of the honor, the prominence, the rights, and luxuries of the firstborn son. It's a positional thing. Think about the culture during biblical times. Who among the children takes first place in prominence? Firstborn. Which one holds the first place in authority? Firstborn. Which one has the, the place over inheritance, firstborn. And Paul brilliantly uses firstborn as a metaphor so that our human minds can understand in human terms that the divine right of Jesus to be first place over everything. So in summary, verse 15 means that, that Jesus is the image of God and he will take a back seat to nothing. So you see, we need to properly orient things What's first for you? Do you need, do I need to check the order of our lives? Absolutely. If you can't say amen, you better say ouch. Right? I, I stole that. I didn't come up with that. It's, it's good though, isn't it? That's from Vaudi Bakum, one of my favorite preachers in the whole world. God doesn't say, and this is why we need to reorient our lives, because God doesn't say the job comes first. It's not me first. It's not family first, others first. It's not safety first. 
ladies first or America first. Jesus comes first. Look at him. Look at him to see what God is like. Some ask a a similar question to this. Romans 1 helps us understand that, that deep down, everyone knows that God is there, but some suppress the truth and they deny God. So maybe they don't ask what he's like, but they're still left with a similar question and a very important one. Where did all this come from? You know, who's ever looked at the sky? I can remember, I used to be in the Navy, and I can remember sometimes at night I'd get an opportunity to go up in the bridge of the ship, and when you're in the middle of the ocean and there's no light, zero, I mean, there's not anywhere you can go here and find zero light. There's nothing, and you can see the sky, Man, it begs the question for everyone, believers and unbelievers, where did this come from? The question's universal, and whether the evolutionist wants to admit it or not, the answer is also universal. Jesus is the answer. Look at verse 16. For by him... That's Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Jesus is the means by which everything was created. Don't you think that we forget about Jesus sometimes when we talk about creation? I mean, we Christians, we know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that, that's straight from Genesis 1.1. And it's true. But let's not forget what John 1.1 says. It goes like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You see, the Father has chosen to be glorified through the Son. And so by Jesus, he created all of these beautiful, complicated, amazing things. He created time and space, galaxies, black holes, and you. It's everything. Look at verse 16 again. What's it say? He created the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So not only did he create everything, but it all exists for him. And this is so important to remember. This is a reason that you should memorize this passage. It is all for his glory. The text says thrones or dominions. Does this encompass world governments and rulers? You bet. World's empires and democracies, our heroes and our tyrants, have all existed and will continue to exist for the purpose of Christ's glory. Think about the sermon series that we did this past summer. Can you remember what it was called? God meant it for good. This was a whole series in Genesis. It was was chapters 42 through 50 where we walked verse by verse through the story of Joseph, seeing so clearly how through all of the evil that was perpetrated against Joseph, there was never a moment when it was outside of God's control. And it became crystal clear when Joseph says in chapter 50, verse 20 of Genesis, you meant it against me, but God meant it for good. 
And so it is with the kingdoms of the world. There is never a moment that Christ does not reign and that his plans are not accomplished. He is patiently executing through the means of humanity that which will ultimately magnify him the most through the redemption of all creation. It's all for him. Even this next bit, look at verse 16 again. It says, invisible. What's that? We talked about the visible, the thrones of kings and the dominions of empires, but now Paul goes beyond a worldly application of these powers. He says invisible, and he follows it with a particular phrase here, rulers and authorities. This phrase, it pops up several times in the Bible, and it's used consistently to communicate the same idea. And we see it twice in Colossians here. Um, Once here, and then look again in chapter 2. Let's turn there, um, beginning verse 14. I'm going to paraphrase verse 14. So chapter 2, verse 14, I'll paraphrase that, and then let's look at 15. Um, 14 is saying that for the believer, our debt, our sin was nailed to the cross, cross in Jesus Christ. Then verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, the rulers and the authorities, that's not the government. That's not the Roman guard. It can't be. They thought that they had won. When he said, it is finished, the price was paid. And when he rose from the grave, death was defeated. And so by Christ's cross, these rulers and authorities, these forces of darkness, are disarmed and put to shame. And these are the rulers and authorities in chapter 1. Go back there, verse 16 again. I'll read it. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He created them. He didn't create them evil. The Bible doesn't say that. He created them and they rebelled. And, And what we're talking about here, in case I missed it, was that these rulers and authorities, these are the satanic, supernatural, demonic forces of evil. The invisible. Jude 1 verse 6 calls them angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. They are rebels, and they intend harm. But they cannot win. Verse 16 says they were created by him and for him. So even in their rebellion and wickedness and plots and schemes and the pain that they cause, they couldn't win at the cross and they cannot win in your life. They belong to him. Memorize this passage and take comfort in the authority of Jesus. Worship Jesus. He's the answer. You know, in worship is something sometimes that we just think of as as music, and that certainly is a part of it, but there are so many ways for you to worship Jesus. Take an active part in preaching. When you hear something is right and you hear something that is good, let your amen be heard. And don't do it for me or Pastor Blair or anyone else that comes and stands in this pulpit. That's not what it's for. Say amen for Jesus. Say amen 
to God, I agree with you, I hear you, yes, this is right, this is good. That's what that is for. We're gonna take communion later. Think only of Christ when you take communion. It is an act of worship. We're gonna sing, we're gonna finish with a, with a song. Don't think about where you're gonna eat or how fast you can get out of the parking lot or who you're gonna talk to or any, any of that stuff. Worship Christ through song. He is worth it. He's the answer. Another question that the world wants to know is, who's in charge around here? Life's tough, is it not? We experience highs and lows. We know what it feels like to be on top of the world, and we know what it's like to hurt and grieve, and we know what it's like to plan and to strive and to think, finally, things are going my way, and then life happens. And in the blink of an eye, our plans crumble and life changes. And it begs the question, who's in charge around here? Jesus is the answer. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before all things here is, is not a repetition simply for the sake of repeating, but it's a focus. It's a, it's a repeat, but it's a focus on Christ's eternal nature, his deity, and authority, and he holds all things together. He's the sustainer of life. He is the governor enforcing the laws of physics. He's what allows the sun to stay put and time to move forward. He's the reason that everything holds in place. I once heard one of my favorite preachers say that because of Jesus, there are no rogue molecules. I love that. You see, there's never a point in time where anything escapes his capacity to bind and hold together all things in accordance to his plans and purposes. And there is never a time in your life when anything escapes his capacity to bind and hold together you in accordance with his plans and purposes. So submit to him. He is sovereign. He's the sustainer. He's the answer. Verse 18, look at that. He is the head of the body, the church, so submit to him. Verse 17 answered, who's in charge around here in sort of a general sense, but verse 18 gets very specific. You want to know who's in charge around here? It's Jesus. Sure, there, there are different roles and levels of leadership established by Scripture in order that the church can function. But when we get down to brass tacks, Jesus is our head. So what does that mean for us? It means that we're a people who must submit to his authority. We're a people who cannot say, I know the Bible says love, but I can't love them. I know the Bible says be different, be holy, but I can't do that. I know the Bible says forgive, but I'll never forgive him or her. When we submit to Jesus, we lay down our right to be offended. We're believers, we're the church, and so the standard to which we're held is different. There are no loopholes in following Christ. You're either gonna do it or you're not. So we submit our lives to him daily and then repent and seek forgiveness for where we fail. But don't worry. 
because he's good. And he loves us, and he's coming back. He's coming back for the church. And you know what he's bringing with him? Justice. One day, all that is wrong with the world will be set right. And it will be set right by the head of the church. He's in charge around here. Submit to him. Let's look at the rest of verse 18. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul drives home the preeminence of Christ in this sentence by highlighting that all things find their origin in Christ. It's not just repeating that Jesus is in first position or that he existed before time began, but here is the, is the sense that the origin, the concept, the design, the essence of everything is found in him. And Paul's saying even to the extent of the resurrection, Christ being firstborn from the dead illustrates the fact that even though he is deity, he's also fully man and experienced death as a man. But he was resurrected through the power of God. And he wasn't raised up in a, a mortal body, not like Lazarus. You know, Lazarus was resurrected, but resurrected to a mortal body. But not Jesus. He was raised in glory with a body that will never experience death again. He is the first among dying men to rise from the grave and be transformed. But fully man does not mean only man. Verse 19 says that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was fully God. He possessed total union with both the Father and the Spirit, having in him all the qualities of God's character. He possessed his graciousness and his goodness, holiness, justice, mercy, love, and all the other qualities of God. This is why Mark 9, 7 tells us that at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father spoke audibly. And he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's the son and all the fullness of God is in him. Listen to him. Submit to him. He's the answer. Submitting to the leadership of Jesus sets us on the right path and in the right direction. And many of us have said, yes, I will follow. I'll follow Jesus. But where are we going? Even the unbeliever asks this question. It's asked in a little different way, but everyone wants to know where we're going, where the earth is headed. They might say, what's the point where is all this headed? Verse 20 tells us, through him to reconcile to himself all things. The whole world, all of its history, from the very first day to the very last, is barreling down the corridor of time, headed for a single destiny, reconciliation. This might not be a word that we use much in our everyday vocabulary. We do use it, however, in the context of relationships, and that's the same way the Bible uses it. In its most simple form, it means to make things right and to put things back in balance, and that's exactly what Jesus will do. You see, when he comes back, all things will be balanced, set right, justice to those who reject him, glory to those who love him, and correction to this fallen, broken planet that we live in. He'll regenerate it. 
He'll reconcile it. But for what reason? To what end? The verse says, to himself. Just like we saw earlier in the passage, it is for him and to him. He reconciles everything to himself. And he is our reward. We'll be in the presence of Christ, the one who has all the fullness of God in him. And I can't wait. I can't wait to finally see him, to look at him, ask him a million questions, to finally live in total, unadulterated, perfect peace. That's what he does. He makes peace. Look at the final phrase, final phrase of our text today, and, and we'll end with this, verse 20. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to a Roman cross, beaten and bloodied on your behalf. You see, God, God is holy, and he hates our sin but he's just, and he must punish sin. But he is also merciful and gracious, and so he takes the punishment. He satisfies his own wrath by sending the Son to take on flesh and to stand in my place, in your place, because of sin. This makes God both just in the punishment of sin and the justifier by taking the punishment himself in Jesus. He spilled his blood so that you can make peace with God today. Repent from sin, turn from it, and believe in the preeminent Savior, Jesus. He's the image of God. He's the source of all things. He's in charge. He's our destiny. Jesus is the answer. Let's pray.